Good morning to you again. The first thing I want to do before we jump into our passage this morning is dismiss our children for kids crew worship. So this is going to be for kids who are fourth grade and under who are going to make their way upstairs along with our leaders to be a part of our kids crew worship time as they are making their way upstairs. Let me, let me mention something really by way of announcement so that uh, you are aware of this. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And we have sort of a, a traditional way that we incorporate our children on Palm Sunday where we use them in worship. And we will sing a song. The name of the song is Hosanna. And, and the song repeats that line, Hosanna, several times. And, and the kids will come in. They'll be a part of our worship during Palm Sunday. That phrase Hosanna is really, it's, it's particular because the phrase itself means literally, save us now, God, or save now, oh God. And that is what the people cried on the first Palm Sunday. We'll say on the true Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the back of the coal, on the back of the, of the, the donkey. The people were throwing their cloaks on the ground. They were waving palm branches. They were crying, Hosanna. And so we're gonna, that's going to be a part of worship. And then our kids also have... Uh, some, some other music that they're going to lead us in next Sunday morning that they've been working on in our children's choirs. And I'm saying all that because Wednesday night they will walk through all of that. And this is open to any kids. This is open to if they've been coming uh, or if, if, if they haven't been coming, we'd love for them to get plugged in and, and be a part of this next Sunday. So if you want your kids to be a part of that, I would strongly encourage you get them here this Wednesday night at 615 for our children's programming as they're going to walk through all of that and uh, practice uh, as, as they just kind of step through that for in preparation for next Sunday morning. All right, we're studying through the book of Romans, and today we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, looking at the first six verses in Romans chapter 7. And there's something interesting here. When you look at Romans 7 itself, the chapter as a whole, I find that what you have here is that Paul first poses the answer and then he gives us the question that the answer is fit for, which is much like the TV show Jeopardy, right? You ever watch the TV show Jeopardy? That on Jeopardy, the way that the show works is the board lights up, there's all of these possible outcomes, there's all of these, these possible uh, categories, and so the contestants pick a category and a, a, a number, right? Like a dollar amount that they would win X amount of dollars if they, if they get this particular one right. But so they say, you know, I'll take people, places, and events for 800, please. And then the host reads them the answer to the question. Have you ever watched Jeopardy and someone buzzes in and he calls on them to answer, but they don't start with the words, what is? They don't start by putting it in the form of a question and then they don't get it right. And someone else will buzz in real quick and they may say the very same thing, but they'll just start with what is and then offer it, right? So he gives, the, the host gives the answer and then they supply the question, which is one of the ways in which that show is really unique and different from, uh, I guess, all the other game shows. And thinking about that, this passage got me thinking about the, the game show Jeopardy because it's essentially that's what Paul does here. In the first six verses of Romans chapter 7, Paul gives us the answer. In fact, really more pointedly than that, really in verse 
4, 5, and 6, he gives us the answer. And then he's going to spend the latter half of the chapter, really more than half even, talking about the question or the problem, if you will. Or the, it's the solution to what. And so next week we're going to focus on, on the what. But today I want to focus on the solution, the answer that we find. And, and so the answer, as we're going to see, is an answer to the sin in our lives. Did you notice I don't know if you noticed this. If you noticed the word sin in the songs that we sang this morning, it was a common theme in our songs, even as we were singing in worship today, this picture of God's forgiveness of our sin, our sin, our rebellion against God, which requires then that we would be forgiven and that we would receive his mercy so that we can live in the forgiveness we've been talking about for several weeks now. Today I want us to see this from the perspective of of how Paul frames it here, this new life that we have in Jesus, this new reality, and that from that we are to bear fruit. We're to live lives that would bear fruit. And so let's read together Romans 7, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, let me say the law that he's talking about here is the Mosaic law as well. So he's, he's speaking specifically to people who understand the Mosaic law and the requirements of the Mosaic law. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. In other words, you can't be held to the law if you're dead. That's the point that he's making. Verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives... But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Let's pause briefly just to unravel and untangle what he said here. Because as Paul does, in Paul's writing style here, he, he gets kind of wordy. And, and, and these long sentences that, that just go on and on. And so this is the point that he's making. He's, we, we saw last week that there is forgiveness in Christ. In fact, we ended last week's study with Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have this forgiveness of sin. We have this, this free gift, which is eternal life through faith in Jesus. And so now he says, don't you understand that the law is binding on a person so long as they live? In other words, we are bound to the law. He's coming back to the point that he's been, that he's been weaving in and out of his, of his writing, of his argument. Essentially, the point is this. The law couldn't save us. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't do enough good things. We couldn't live with enough righteousness to save ourselves from our sin. We have sinned. We have rebelled against God. And we are condemned in our sin. Praise God, though, he tells us. God's made a way for us to be forgiven through faith in Jesus. And that, that forgiveness didn't come through keeping the law, through keeping a religious ritual, through keeping a set of rules, through a, a moral behavior or, or the, the works that we might do. Instead, forgiveness comes through faith in Jesus. And with that, the eternal life, the free gift of eternal life that he spoke about. And so in connecting the law and the picture of marriage here, what he's saying is that inside of the law, okay, so let's... let's, let's unpack his argument about marriage, and then let's understand why he's using that as the metaphor here. So inside of the law, the law provided that 
once a husband and, and wife were, were united together in marriage, that the wife could not divorce her husband. Now, this isn't meant to be, this isn't meant to be necessarily telling us uh, how we should practice divorce and how that should operate today. This isn't meant to be prescriptive. I would say it's more descriptive of the law. So what he's saying is, in, in that day and time, in their context, according to the Mosaic law, if a husband and woman were, a husband and wife were married, the wife could not divorce the husband so long as he was alive. Now, if he died, she's free to remarry. But so long as, so long as they are married, she can't, she can't live with another man. Now, in the Mosaic Law, the husband had the ability to divorce his wife. He had the ability to give his wife a certificate of divorce. In other words, just, just to say... A husband could divorce his wife, but the wife couldn't divorce her husband. That was the way that the, the law operated. It's the way that they practiced the law. And the, what he's saying here is that we were, in the same sense, we were bound to, as long as we were tied to the law, we're bound to this covenant that we can't, we can't get free from. That as long as we are married to the law, if you want to use that language, as long as we are married to the law, as long as we are hoping in and trusting in the law, all the law can do is point out our, our shortcomings, our failures. The law itself can't save us. We need something greater than the law in order to be forgiven. And that's what we have in Jesus. So we're dead to the law. That's the point. We're no longer bound to the law, no longer united to, or even to just borrow this metaphor, no longer married to the law in that sense. So we're not bound to keep that law, that Mosaic law. Now, that may cause us to think, oh, well, then we don't need the law. What good is the law? Well, he's going to answer that for us really pointedly uh, next week. We're going to see in verse 7 where we'll pick up next Sunday that this doesn't mean that we throw away the teaching of the Old Testament. What it simply means is that we understand that in the system that the law lays out, we're never going to find salvation through keeping the law, through, through the good things that we do, through being religious in our own self-righteousness. We needed something greater. And in fact, he's been telling us that's the point of the law all along. It was never to save, but to show us that we need salvation and we need it in something outside of ourselves. Of course, God answers that question with Jesus. Okay? So that kind of brings us up to this moment. That's a little bit of a, it's a, little bit of a, a difficult metaphor to grapple with. At, at first reading anyway, because it seems somewhat like it's out of nowhere. Like we're, we're, we're trucking along, we're talking about God's forgiveness, and then boom, all of a sudden, this idea of a, of a woman and a man and marriage and, and divorce and, and adultery and how do we, we're no longer married. And the, the point of all of it, as we begin to unpack it and unravel it, is just simply to understand that. We are not married to our, our goodness our righteousness. That won't save us. That won't do it. But we're free from all of that because we've, we're dead to the law. We're alive in Jesus. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. There's that phrase, died to the law, dead to the law. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit 
and not in the old way of the written code. I really want us to spend some time thinking about this morning these verses, particularly verses 4, 5, and 6, but most especially what we read in the last part of verse 4. Let's read that again because what he says in the last part of verse 4, he's talking about we're no longer... We're no longer bound to the law. We've died to the law. We've been united with Christ. And then this phrase, in order that we may bear fruit for God. See, the point of all of this, that at the center of what really chapter 7 is about, is that we are dead to sin, as we saw in chapter 6, and alive to God in Christ, in order that we might bear fruit for God. That's the point. In order that we, our lives might bear fruit. In order that we might live for, for, for Christ. In John chapter 15, verse 8, as Jesus is teaching his disciples and as he's teaching them in the last moments that they have together, quite literally as they're walking from the upper room where they've celebrated the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would ultimately be arrested and betrayed by Judas. And in that in that. Uh, that transition, if you will, the scene change that's taking place. And it's not just a story, but I I paint it in that way so that we understand the movement that's taking place. As they're walking to the garden, Jesus is teaching his disciples along the way. In John chapter 15, verse 8, he tells his disciples that they are to bring glory to the Father and prove to be his disciples by bearing much fruit. And, and I love that verse. It's like a, a life verse for me that I'm, I'm to prove that I'm his disciple. I'm to demonstrate my faith in Jesus by bearing much fruit. Well, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. That we, that we may bear much fruit for God. That's the point. And so if we're to bear fruit for God, then how, how are we to do that? Well, this, actually we see even in these verses, we see sort of a, a framework for how we're to do this. Just by, just by looking at the context of what he's saying, we understand how it is that we can bear fruit for God. First of all, we see that to bear fruit, you must have faith. To bear fruit, you must have faith. Again, all of this is being presented in the context of our faith in Christ, right? Verse four, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel in a nutshell. That we're dead to our old self. We're alive through faith in Jesus. That I'm no longer who I once was, but now I'm, I'm made new in Christ. And do you see how baptism becomes such a great picture of that? Even as, we, even as someone is baptized and as, as they're plunged under the water, that's the picture of being dead to the old self. And as we come up out of the water, it's the picture again of being made alive through faith in Christ. That's why for several weeks now, we've kind of parked and, and, and spent time thinking about this idea that was presented early in Romans chapter 6. Even the language that we use when we baptize is borrowed from Romans chapter 6, that we may walk in newness of life, Romans 6 verse 4. As we trust in Jesus and, we, and now we, we would bear fruit for God. It requires that we have faith, that we have saving faith. Now, I think it's important that we understand what faith means. Because so much of the time, we think of faith along the lines of belief. And there is certainly an element of understanding. There's an element of belief that drives our faith. 
But I'm here to tell you that faith is not merely intellectual. Faith is not simply cognitive. Faith is not about just understanding things or or cognitive awareness of certain things. Faith requires something else. Because if I if I have if, if my faith only exists in my mind, then I never do anything with that. No, faith requires action. In fact, I Rayleigh and I will tell our children that practically speaking, much of the time faith looks a lot like obedience. You want to you know if someone has faith? Then watch their actions and see if they obey. See how they live. See how they conduct themselves. Because practically speaking, we see faith demonstrated in the way that we live through our obedience. I have often said that faith is a belief that, that we act upon or belief that we put into that we put into action. So when we act upon that belief, that's where we truly demonstrate faith. And so when we're talking about faith in this sense, especially in the context of bearing fruit, it means that not only that we would understand these truths, not only that we understand that I'm a sinner, not only that I understand that, I, that my sin is, is, is rebellion against God, it's the wrong that I have done, that I'm in need of forgiveness, but that I act on that understanding by surrendering my life to Jesus, by confessing him as Lord and Savior, by yielding all that I have to him. That's what it means to take that next step of faith. So I understand these things to be true, yes, but I act on that understanding. And not only do I act, I act in a way that is in line with what the the Bible teaches. I act in a way that it's in, in line with what the scripture revealed, what the Lord has called me to, so that my actions are tied to acts of obedience, that I would walk in faithfulness as I follow Christ. To bear fruit, you must have faith. You have to have faith, faith in Christ, faith in, in Jesus. And, and it's not just a belief. It's not just an understanding. But it's behavior driven by that belief and understanding. We, we get that? Everybody tracking with me? Okay, so in order to bear fruit, you have to have faith. Secondly, we see in, in this framework again that to bear fruit, you must have patience. Now, I'm, I'm inferring this from the very language that's used here, okay? Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. I think the, the, the phrasing that he uses here, particularly the word bear, is really important. Because, see, what we want in a world where we're used to things just instantaneously, in a world where we, we order something and it shows up, we put it, in our, you know, we put it in our cart and we just pull up to the store and people bring it out to us, in a world where we order food and somebody you know, door dashes it to us, or they, we, we're used to getting things when we want. And we live in a world where we can sort of create or, or, or we can sort of... Uh, if you will, dictate when things happen around us. And if we're not careful, that we apply that to our faith in Christ as well. We want all the fruit. We want the, the things that come with faith in Christ, and we want it now. But that's not the way that it works. It requires patience. The word bear points to the fact that fruit grows, right? Fruit doesn't just appear. If, if, you've, ever, if you've ever had a, a fruit tree in your backyard... You know that the fruit doesn't just show up all of a sudden. You don't walk outside and say, it'd be great to have an apple, and the apple just appears, right? Or something of that nature. No, it grows. It's a process that takes time. Fruit grows. And the word bear, I think, implies that. 
that we are to bear fruit, which means that it's a process that takes place in our lives. And so maybe you walk in this place today and, and, you're, and you hear this and you're discouraged because you think, I'm so far from where I need to be. Listen, there's hope for you. If you've ever felt like, I'm not where I need to be, I, I, I'm, I'm, it never seems like I'm where I, where I ought to be, I always come up short, I always feel like I'm behind, you don't have to raise your hand, but anybody feel like this? Anybody you feel like, that's me, to a T. There's hope for us. I'm that way too. Can I tell you, as your pastor, I feel like that. I look at my life and I understand and I am not where I need to be. You would think this many years in to following Christ, this many years in to studying the scripture, this many years in to pastoring, shepherding, leading, this many years in to doing the things that the Lord has burdened me and called me to do, you'd think I'd be better at it than I am sometimes. I fall short all the time. But there's hope in the fact that it's a process. In fact, one of my favorite quotes, and I use this all the time. So if you've been around for a minute, you've heard me share this. But I love it. It's one of my very favorite quotes. It's from Billy Graham. And Billy Graham said that mountaintops are great for views and inspiration, but fruit grows in a valley. And if you feel like you're in the valley, like you're in the low place, you're in the struggle, you're in the midst of the hard time, there's hope for you because that's where fruit grows. Is in those moments, the difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the, the, the hardships that we walk through. That's where the Lord is going to be working in our lives to produce fruit in us. Fruit grows. It doesn't just appear. So it takes patience. Now, the Lord is patient with us. Peter writes in 2 Peter that God is patient. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, you can read that. He writes that God is patient with us. God is patient with us. Sometimes it's hard for us to be patient with ourselves in the midst of all this. Sometimes we live with guilt and shame. We live defeated because we think that that ought to just happen. I trusted Jesus and yet I still wrestle against sin. I'm here to tell you there's hope for us in that. In fact, that's really the problem that this answers. Okay, So next week we're going to deal more with the idea. And, And we'll take courage from the fact that even Paul himself... Paul, one of the people that we would put on the the Mount Rushmore of faith, if you will, right? One of the champions of our Christian faith. Paul himself is going to go on to say, I struggle against sin. And I don't do the thing that I ought to do. And I do the thing that I shouldn't do. Even Paul can identify with that struggle against the flesh. But he tells us here in verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So as long as we're living in the flesh, meaning before faith in Christ, as long as we're living in the flesh, in the power of the flesh, in the hopes of the flesh, then the only thing that we can hope for from the law is death. Because the law is just going to show us again and again that we're condemned. But through faith in Jesus, we're dead to the law. We're made alive in Christ. And now there's hope. Not only is there hope, there's victory for us. Not because of what we can do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, which points us to the third part of this framework that I'm pointing to, this structure, and which is to bear fruit, you must have the Holy Spirit. To bear fruit, you need to have faith in Christ, To bear fruit, you need to have not only faith in Christ, but you need to have patience, understanding that it's going to be a process that takes time. But to bear fruit, you also then need to have the Holy Spirit, meaning that you can't do it on your own. On your own. 
All you can, all you are capable of is producing fruit which leads to death, which means that the very best that you have to offer, the very best that your good deeds can produce is, is the fruit of death. It's not enough to save you. It's not enough to transform. You need the power of God's Holy Spirit alive in you. And that's the answer. That's the answer. If the question is, how do I live by faith? If the question is, how do I continue on? How do I walk with Jesus? How do I experience the new life through faith in Christ? If that's the question, how do I live in light of sin and the struggle to sin? The answer is through the power of the Holy Spirit alive in you. So we see that here. That we would live and serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the code. And then, in a few weeks, in fact, on Easter Sunday, we're really going to see how that comes together as we live, not in the flesh, not in the power of the flesh, but made alive through the work of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. That's going to be what we study together on Easter Sunday in a couple of weeks. But here, this is the answer, nonetheless. If the question is, what do I do about my sin? What do I do about my struggles? What do I do about this propensity within me to always do the wrong thing, to always come up short, to never be who I ought to be or never do what I ought to do? The answer is that we trust in the Holy Spirit, not in ourselves, not in a better version of ourselves, but rather through faith, we trust in the Holy Spirit to produce in us what we could never do on our own. The Holy Spirit alive in us, producing the fruit of righteousness. Galatians chapter 5. You may be aware that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it gives us what we often refer to as the fruit of the Spirit. And it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such, it goes on to say, there is no law. Against such things, there is no law. So the the fruit that the Spirit brings about in us are all those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the point that we need to understand is that on our own, we we can work toward those things. We can try to produce those things. But we'll never be able to produce those. Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so if we want to experience that, then we need the Spirit moving in us, the Spirit working in us to produce fruit. Okay? Well, then the last question that we ought to ask is, so how do I get the Spirit? If I need the Holy Spirit, then how do I, how do I have the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is ours through faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is ours through faith in Christ. Again, it takes faith. You must have faith. To produce fruit, you must have faith. And through faith in Christ, he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell with us. In another book of the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 1, you can look at verse 13 and 14. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13 that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a, a, a mark, as a guarantee of our faith. Essentially, it's sort of like the, the down payment that, that the Lord gives saying that we will find ultimate salvation, ultimate forgiveness in Christ. And so he gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us. So the Holy Spirit comes through faith as we trust in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit works in us to produce fruit, that we would bear fruit. It's a process. It's not instantaneous. It doesn't happen overnight. 
But as we trust in him and we live by faith, the Holy Spirit will produce his fruit in us as we walk by faith. I wonder, do you see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Can you point to fruit in your life, spiritual fruit that's grown as a product of, as the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Has there ever been a time when you have surrendered your life to Jesus by faith? In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response. And if you're here today and you recognize that there's, there's never been a moment in my life when I've truly surrendered my life to Jesus, then even as we sing this song of invitation and even as we have this time of response, I would encourage you, you would come forward. I'll be here at the front. Brad will be here at the front. We would love to pray with you, a prayer of faith, to, to walk you through that, that, that decision to trust Christ by faith, to confess him as Savior and Lord as you place your faith in Jesus. And you say, Lord, I want, I want, I want to surrender my life to you. I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide me, to be with me, forgive me of my sin. And if you're ready to do that today, I would encourage you that you would surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe you've taken that step and you're discouraged. You're frustrated by the fact that it seems like the fruit that you ought to see isn't there. Can I encourage you? It's a process. Be patient. Trust the Lord. Follow the leadership of his Holy Spirit. And understand this, that practically speaking, day by day, it's going to look a lot like just simple obedience. Take steps of obedience. Obey what the Lord has called you to do. Obey what his word tells you to do. Obey what the Bible instructs us to do, his commands, what they instruct us to do. And as we live that way, we will begin to see the Spirit producing his fruit in us. And so as we prepare for this moment of response, I want to call us into a time of prayer. I would ask that you would bow your head and close your eyes with me. And even in this moment, as we move into a a time of prayer. This prayer is intended to, to be a moment where we, where we converse with the Lord, where we, where we talk to God and we say, Lord, I want to respond in faith. I want to respond in obedience to thee. Would you guide me today? Holy Spirit, would you lead me that I might be fully yielded, fully surrendered to you? Would you join me now as we pray? Lord, we We ask for your leadership, the guidance of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, even as we respond. Lord, we understand that on our own, even our responses will fall short apart from the work of your Holy Spirit because we're just going to come back to the same endless cycle that we find ourselves in of trying to be better but falling short. We confess that we need you, Holy Spirit, to guide us. We need you working inside of us. And we understand that comes through faith in Jesus. Would you move in our hearts now, Spirit? Would you guide us, lead us, that we might bear fruit and that the fruit that we bear wouldn't be about us. It's not about us showing out or showing up, but it's about you, Jesus, that the fruit we bear would point to Jesus our faith in you, our trust in you, your abiding presence in our lives. And so even as we're about to sing, Jesus, hold us fast. Guide us, sustain us as we look to you by faith. All of this we pray in your name. Amen.